You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 6th of December 2023 on Monaco Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, could Israel be about to flood tunnels under Gaza with seawater? We'll examine this and look at what Vladimir Putin is doing in the region. We'll ask what is really behind Austria's moves to block Ukraine's EU accession and then... We will not tolerate their racist policies in terms of the legislative programme rolling back all of the achievements that our leaders have worked hard to in the last 51 years. We'll be in New Zealand to find out more about the mass protests over the rollback of Indigenous policies by the new government. We'll hear about the future of work, have a flick through the papers and a roundup of theatre news. And then finally... Of course, you know, if you look at the top of the charts, you have Doja Cat, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, of course, they are young. But I think the world is changing and it's kind of accepting, especially if you're a woman over 70, like Cher. Is 70 the new 20? Fernando celebrates the septuagenarians conquering the Christmas charts. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The US has begun imposing visa bans on people involved in violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, officials said, after several appeals for Israel to do more to prevent violence by Jewish settlers. The United States and Sweden have signed a defence cooperation agreement, the US Department of State said, as the Nordic country strengthens military alliances whilst waiting for approval to join NATO. And Australia Post will soon end daily letter deliveries as part of a series of postal reforms announced today, designed to modernise the government-owned postal service and help it turn a profit. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, we begin the show with the latest developments in the Middle East, from Israel's continued offensive in the south of Gaza to Vladimir Putin's visit to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Joining me now from Dubai is Greg Karlstrom, a Middle East correspondent and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. Greg has recently returned from covering the Israel-Gaza conflict in Jerusalem. Uh, Greg, many thanks for joining us. Grave concerns have been expressed about the safety of civilians in Gaza as the IDF ground offensive ramps up. Now, we know that Israel's using high-tech solutions to map evacuation routes and safe zones. Uh, that's according to Israeli authorities. I I wonder if you could tell us more about what's being done to protect civilians and how effective it is. Right. There's a high-tech piece of it and a, a low-tech piece of it. The, the latter is that the Israeli army has distributed maps where they have divided Gaza into about 600 numbered zones. And the idea is that on a rolling basis, they're going to tell Palestinians in Gaza that some of those zones are not safe because the army is fighting there. Uh, and they should flee to other zones that are meant to be safe. And then that is coupled with this high-tech effort to try and track uh, mobile phone usage in Gaza and to use that as a way to figure out where there are 
dense groups of civilians and, and both move people to safety and also uh, avoid pushing everyone into areas that are already overcrowded. Uh, one of those things that sounds good in theory, but in practice, when you speak to Palestinians uh, in Gaza over the past few days, some of them point out, first of all, it's it's hard to get internet access in Gaza. It didn't even have 3G access before the war. People were reliant on uh, 2G internet, and there have been huge issues around uh, both electricity and communications during the war. Uh, this map, not very detailed. People don't know where some of these zones begin and end. And they say sometimes uh, the Israeli army has told them to flee one area and go to another area, but the route that they would have to take to do that uh, crosses through other areas where there is fighting. So Palestinians in Gaza saying the system uh, so far not making, not doing much to make anyone feel like there is anywhere safe to go. Mm. The Wall Street Journal's reporting that Israel's considering flooding tunnels in Gaza with seawater. Do we know more about that plan? They are considering that these tunnels are thought to be where most of uh, Hamas's leadership is holed up right now, along with the bulk of the group's militants. Uh, the Israeli army has tried to avoid doing raids into these tunnels because tunnel warfare is extremely difficult. And what they've settled so far for doing is, is trying to blow up the entrances of those tunnels. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of those entrances scattered across Gaza. So what they have been discussing, preparing to do is, is bringing in pumps to try and uh, move seawater from the Mediterranean into these tunnels to to flood them and then avoid having to go into them. Many of these tunnels are thought to be connected. And so if you start flooding at one entrance, it could flood a significant part of the tunnel network. Uh, I think two problems that emerge with that. One is that uh, it's not just Hamas that is in these tunnels, but it's also the 140 or so Israeli hostages who are still being held in Gaza. And obviously, uh, big concerns that if the Israelis flooded the tunnels, it would kill the hostages. The other question is what that means for Gaza, what the impact of that is going to be, for example, uh, on the stability of buildings that are built on top of these tunnels. If you start flooding them, perhaps the tunnels start collapsing, uh, what that means for the infrastructure above. Mm. And also what it means for the environment. Surely you might then uh, risk uh, um, sullying the, the water source. You do. And the water supply in Gaza was already almost undrinkable. Uh, even before the war, the United Nations saying that more than 90% of people in Gaza didn't have access to clean drinking water. Uh, the aquifer that many people rely on for water in Gaza has been so depleted over the years that seawater had already begin, begun to flood into the aquifer and the water had become very salty. Uh, and yes, as you say, there's a risk that if you start flooding these tunnels, that seeps into the groundwater, it seeps into the soil and has consequences for agriculture in the long term. And, and nothing like this has really been tried before. So no one really knows what those consequences would be. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, has warned of a looming health crisis in Gaza. It's called an emergency summit for Saturday to discuss that. What are the most pressing health concerns? You have, first of all, the, the backdrop of a healthcare system that has all but collapsed over the past two months. Many hospitals in Gaza are out of service. They've been bombed. They've been damaged during fighting. Uh, there has been a limited supply of medicine coming into Gaza uh, in these aid trucks that crossed over from Egypt each day, but there are widespread shortages of many medicines. So the system is already collapsing. And then you have 2 million people crammed into a very small area in the south. Uh, and one shelter in Khan Yunus, which is the first main city 
uh, in southern Gaza, uh, you have about 22,000 people right now sheltering in in a building that was built to house at most 2,000. Uh, hundreds of people sharing showers, hundreds of people sharing toilets. Uh, so things like diarrhea and other gastrointestinal diseases already spreading quite rapidly. Sanitation is very poor. Uh, and then, of course, winter has arrived, and that brings rain, that brings cold temperatures. Uh, so all of this, yeah, real fears that all of this will combine to, to cause outbreaks of disease. Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, is due in the region this week. He visits Saudi Arabia and the UAE today, and he's also due to meet the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, on Thursday. What's the state of relations between Russia, Saudi Arabia and the UAE? He has had good relations with both, and he has kept good relations with both uh, even after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The relationship with Saudi Arabia, a lot of that is based on oil. Saudi, of course, is the, the largest member of OPEC. Russia is not a member of OPEC, but uh, they've formed the so-called OPEC plus cartel, where the Saudis and the Russians have tried to work together in recent years uh, to limit production and therefore to keep oil prices higher. And they have kept that agreement going uh, even after the war, even after sanctions were imposed on Russian oil. Uh, with the Emiratis, the Russians have a range of interests. One of them is that the UAE has emerged as a very important hub for Russian sanctions busting, for uh, Russian finance to come through the UAE, Russian oil going through the UAE and being blended with other kinds of oil and then uh, resold as, as non-Russian crude, uh, all sorts of sanctions busting going on in the UAE. So there are some very tangible economic elements to the relationship. And Russia really relies on its relationship with both of these countries. And then there's also an element of, of what you could just call geopolitical trolling at a time where uh, much of the Arab world is outraged about what it sees as Western double standards, uh, supporting Ukrainians, but not supporting Palestinians, uh, condemning Russian war crimes, but not condemning Israeli war crimes. Uh, Vladimir Putin coming to the region is, is certainly an effort to try and capitalize on that widespread anger across the Arab world and, and of course, also shift attention away from Ukraine. Mm. And I mean, we know that Putin did a deal with Hamas to get some Russian nationals who were being held as hostages released. What's Russia's uh, official position on the conflict? It has avoided condemning Hamas in the wake of the massacre on October 7th. Uh, it has called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, it has made some some hollow statements about a two-state solution and, and wanting a longer-term solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But much like China, it has tried to take a, a diametrically opposed position to that of the West, which of course condemns Hamas, supports Israel, uh, both Russia and China, uh, trying to again capitalize on the anger in the Arab world by positioning themselves in opposition to the West. Uh, now we know that Iran's attitude to the war differs from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. What will Putin be hoping to achieve during his meeting with Raisi? He has built a much closer relationship with the Iranians uh, over the past year. Iran has become, for example, a, a source of uh, military support to Russia, sending hundreds or thousands of drones to the Russian army, which it has used uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine. It's become an important military supplier at a time when very few countries around the world are willing to supply weapons to Russia. So that's one piece of it. And then also an emerging economic relationship between the two. These are two of the most heavily 
sanctioned countries in the world. They both have uh, embargoes on on or restrictions on oil sales and various other Western sanctions in place. And they have actually worked together in recent years to find ways to circumvent those sanctions. And that's something that I think they will continue to talk about. And Greg, just before we go, are there any updates from Netanyahu's corruption trial? No, nothing significant yet. Uh, the trial just resumed earlier this week after a, a two-month pause. Israeli courts were more or less suspended uh, after the October 7th massacre and, and in the first two months of the war. So this trial is slow going. It's been going on for years now. The investigations into Netanyahu went on for years before that. I think it certainly adds to the political pressure on the prime minister at a time when three quarters of the Israeli public want him to resign. But uh, that trial actually coming to a conclusion. I think we're still many months, if not years, away from that. Greg, thank you very much indeed. That was Greg Karlstrom there. And this is The Globalist. It's 7.12 here in London. That's 8.12 in Vienna. Later this month, EU leaders will hold a summit to decide whether to formally approve the start of membership talks with Ukraine and Moldova and to review progress towards expansion of the bloc to as many as 35 members. This can be halted by any one member. Hungary is already making it difficult and now it looks as if Austria is going to be a stumbling block too. Well, joining me from Berlin is Florian Eder, who is a senior political editor at the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. Uh, Florian, many thanks for, for coming on the show once again. Uh, Alexander Schallenberg is Austri Austria's foreign minister. What's he said about EU enlargement? Uh, good morning, first of all. Austria is, of course, has long been a supporter of the Western Balkans uh, and the, the, you know, the Western Balkans country's biggest friends in the European Union. So there has been uh, a fear in this region and in Austria and in other countries uh, that, you know, these countries are overtaken by Ukraine and by Moldova for political reasons in their quest to join the European Union at some point. So this is the core of the opposition to the favorable treatment, if you wish, uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and that is something uh, that Alexander Schallenberg has mentioned recently. Um, I don't think that this is uh, an opposition at the same level of um, obstination and, uh, and, and, and uh, an attempt to block uh, the whole process as we see in Hungary, though. Mm. Well, uh, so he's very insistent that Bosnia is considered yeah. at the same time as Ukraine and Moldova. Why has Bosnia's progress been so slow? But Bosnia has, of course, uh, a ton of internal problems that the, the European Union does not want to import. So this is the the region that this is the reason for uh, the slow progress there that they have, you know, all kinds of uh, of internal problems that, of course, you can argue Ukraine has too, even to a, to a bigger extent, as there is more ongoing in the country. Um, but this is uh, what, what people call uh, certain double standards, and this is part of the part of the the argumentation of the friends of Bosnia and other countries. So, I mean, some people are suggesting that this might be a deliberate ploy by Austria to frustrate Ukraine's attempts to become an EU member. If that was so, why might it be the case? I would probably disagree. To be honest, that this is a, a deliberate attempt to um, uh, to frustrate Ukraine. It's pretty clear, and it has been very clear for weeks, if not months, that Hungary is very um, is very much willing this time around to really derail the whole EU summit. And by that, you know, more than the EU summit, uh, it would be derailing the whole uh, EU policy uh, uh, towards Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe. 
Um, so an opposition to or, you know, joining that opposition or seemingly joining that opposition is, of course, easy um, because you can easily uh, make a U-turn um, uh, and be happy with some compromise that's offered to you if you know that there is someone who will actually hold the, hold the line. So, I mean, Politico quotes an EU diplomat saying that it's the return of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He says it's not just Orban. The dual monarchy is back. When it comes to enlargement, Austria is hiding behind Hungary, but no one dares point that out. So, I mean, how close are the two, Austria and Hungary? I think for the sake of a juicy quote, you would say (laughs) things like that, of course. (laughs) Um, I guess uh, Vienna and Austria... Is actually has you know long been closer to Russia than other members. It uh, it's a historically neutral country, and it is as dependent, if not more dependent. It is a, it used to be as dependent, if not more dependent, on Russian oil and energy in, in general. Uh, so there was always a kind of uh, closeness to to Russia. If you remember, the foreign minister, the former foreign minister inviting Putin to her wedding and even bowing uh, uh, in front of him and insisting that she wanted to keep his gift as a personal gift and so on. So um, that's a bad example, of course. But there is a certain position that uh, uh, that brings Austria very close to Russia. I think this is more the case than uh, the Austrian government, which has been very clear in other, uh, in, in other circumstances and on other issues um, that Hungary is... Uh, is that Hungary is 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 blocking, is trying to block uh, progress in the European Union there. I mean, I wonder what Hungary's reason is for opposing. We know that uh, Orban has been invited to Paris to meet uh, French President Emmanuel Macron at the end of this week to try and find a comp- compromise. Um, why is Hungary resisting so much? I think there are two reasons, at least, or three. One is um, that Hungary is also, like the others, in, uh, a huge supporter of the countries who try, which try to, um, to become a member of the European Union in the Western Balkans. So there is the element there um, of uh, Ukraine being, um, being, being treated in a favorable way for no reason in, in Hungary's view, uh, and that others should have the chance to become members of the European Union at least as, as fast as Ukraine and Moldova do. The other thing is that Orban has long um, been at odds with with the European Union, starting from uh, the former former uh, European Commission President Jean Claude Juncker. Now he does actually, you know, he has these um, he has these ads out for his government that depict Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, as the personified evil. Uh, again, which tries to undermine European and uh, Hungarian sovereignty and things like that. So there is an ideological part to this fight, and and he's looking for opportunities and occasions to fight this battle. Um, and this is a very good one, as it uh, uh, seemingly resonates with with uh, Hungarian voters and the Hungarian public. So there is a big fear in Brussels and in other capitals that indeed this could derail more than just a summit, but it could be. Um, it could derail the whole European Union and that six months ahead of the of the European elections, showing that the European Union is unable to take decisions, is unable um, to produce progress, is unable uh, to do anything meaningful. And that could be one of the reasons, at least that's what people tell me, uh, for Hungary to be as um, stubborn as it is at the moment. And there's money involved too. The EU is withholding funds. That's indeed the third part, of course. Um, there has been... 
there have been signals from the European Commission um, that they could release some of the money that it's being held back held back uh, for corruption allegations in Hungary, um, but that didn't seem to be as interesting to Orban as people in Brussels had thought. Mm. So finally, I mean, if if the meeting to consider access negotiations in December is cancelled because of this, I wonder what it means for Ukraine and indeed for Moldova. Those countries have high expectations uh, towards that meeting in Brussels, probably higher expectations than participants of that meeting have. Um, uh, Cancelling the meeting or probably worse coming together and um, and not being able to take a decision on the on the start of the negotiations is of course uh, a huge geopolitical signal that the European Union is not able to do what it what it promises to do that it is a geopolitical player that it is a player on the global stage um, and that is right what Putin wants and that is right what other uh, uh, powers in the world actually would want to see so there is the question why would why would Orban and why would Hungary and others perhaps. Um, be willing to contribute to that to that uh, signaling. Um, that is something that uh, I don't have an answer to. Florian, thank you very much indeed. That's Florian Ida there. Now, still to come on the programme, Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will explain why 70 is the new 20. Of course, you know, if you look at the top of the charts, you have Doja Cat, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, of course, they are young. But I think the world is changing and it's kind of accepting, especially if you're a woman over 70, like Cher. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 7.22 here in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and this is The Globalist. We'll continue now with today's newspapers and joining me in the studio is the political journalist and author Terry Stiastini. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Now, there was a photograph released last week by Nadine Dorries, a former um, MP, a frustrated non-member of the House <laughs> of Lords and very close ally of Boris Johnson. And it was a picture of her and Johnson standing together with arms around each other in front of a roaring fire. In fact, it looked like the fire had in fact set uh, set fire that like there were flames coming from Mr Johnson's <laughs> pants. In other words, his pants were on fire. Uh, and he has been accused, of course, as we know, yeah. of being a liar. And he's been in front of the COVID inquiry. Uh, tell us what's well, come out of that. He's he's coming up in front of the COVID inquiry uh, today and tomorrow. This is their main uh, sort of work for the week, is spending two days grilling Boris Johnson on what happened and all the decisions he took uh, during you know the lockdowns 
Times and the whole pandemic period. And uh, usefully for him, perhaps, the Times says today um, he's been asked to give his phone and his, his WhatsApp messages to the inquiry. But um, you know, un- unfortunately, and I'm sure everybody's terribly, terribly sad about this, he was advised to stop using his old phone because um, his, you know, he was a former journalist, his phone number is freely available on the internet for, for anybody to look up for, for years and years. This would deemed to be a security risk. He was told not to use his own phone. And he has coincidentally seems to have lost all the WhatsApp messages that refer to the relevant period of the first lockdown. However, you know, um, everybody else seems to have kept their WhatsApp messages that he, uh, that he sent them. So they, the inquiry may still be able to grill him fairly thoroughly on this. But I mean, more seriously, this is, you know, it's a big couple of days. Um, and you know, there have been so many questions raised about the decisions that Boris Johnson took and the kinds of things uh, that he was saying, uh, whether he was constantly, you know, whether he was telling the truth, whether he was changing his mind constantly about how to deal with lockdowns or not. I mean, the a uh, former cabinet secretary describing him as saying, on Monday, we were all in fear about the virus returning. This is Boris Johnson's view. He said, today we were in let it rip mode. The UK is pathetic, needs a cold shower. Um, you know, him comparing himself to the mayor in Jaws and saying that the beaches should have been kept open, you know, things like this. So this would be Boris Johnson's chance. And he's been trying to kind of get his own views of what he's going to say to the inquiry out before the inquiry actually happens. Uh, you know, will he <laughs> apologise and what, how will he come across? I mean, to to really a very compliant press. I've been absolutely shocked at the amount of positive stories I've seen about Johnson in the run-up to this. Lots and lots of slightly right-wing media just talking about, well, trying to get his excuses out, as you I th- say. I think he's still, you know, he's obviously still got, you know, quite a strong uh, press operation and he still is sending out, you know, the lines that, you know, he's he's been spending sort of hours and hours practising his testimony. He's been sitting with his lawyers. He will apologise to people. Um, you know, he's expected to be greeted by relatives, by bereaved families, you know, saying your decisions affected, you know, meant that we lost our relatives, you know, so it's going to be, it's going to be a big show and it's going to be a big day. So I think, you know, because he is going to be picked apart by barristers for over two days, he, you know, he's trying to put out his own view of what happened in case he doesn't manage to get that across in front of the inquiry. Let's go to US politics now, just as unsavoury as what's going on here. Um, The FT has a piece about Biden saying he wasn't sure he would run again if Trump wasn't running. Well, yes, this is uh, does seem to be Joe Biden really kind of saying the quiet part out loud and not sure if this was an advisable thing. um, And the New York Times covering this as well to tell Democratic donors. Uh, So he was at a fundraising event in Massachusetts on Tuesday um, and he said, Uh, if Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we cannot let him win for the sake of our country. Uh, And so, you know, obviously people have picked up on this a lot. Uh, Trump advisors saying, oh, you know, there's no not no confidence in him. Um, But what... Uh, I suppose the bigger message that uh, that Joe Biden was trying to put across was saying, you know, that he's still really feeling that Trump is, is a massive danger. And so his words there were saying Trump's not even hiding the ball anymore. He's telling us what he's going to do. He's making no bones about it. But I think, you know, just having said that he it even crossed his mind, Joe Biden, that he might not run again, might raise more questions um, among, you know, even Democrats who are saying, well, is, is this the right person? But, you know, he obviously... Still Still says that he is going to he's going to carry on that he he is still standing and really talking about you know the potential 
dangers uh, of Trump and, you know, talking about uh, just, you know, the kinds of things that Trump might do if he was if he was given another chance in office. Mm. Let's go to France now. And this is all about education. Yes. Well, you know, the, the PISA study came out uh, yesterday, which is, you know, the big study which looks at education levels uh, across the world, something that the OECD does. And the worrying thing for a lot of countries is that this has shown that really COVID has had a huge impact um, on education standards. And it's one um, statistic, which is, is picked out here by, by France 24 says in maths in Denmark France Greece Portugal and Sweden the average 15 year old in 2022 scored at the level expected of a 14 year old in 2018 so there's obviously you know a few factors involved in this but France the French education minister uh, has has reacted really strongly to this and he has come out with a big press conference um, yesterday Gabriel Attal uh, and he has, is not going to be very happy reading, I don't think, for some French school students, because one of the things he's really worried about how France is doing uh, in maths, particularly, and and his approach is to say, well, basically, you have to, the Le Figaro is reporting, you have to go back and do your year again. And now this is something you can do in France. They say, if you don't pass the year, you go back and and do retakes. Um, And so he's saying, well, this is one way to try and deal with France's falling levels of maths. And he wants to make sure that you've passed your maths at every stage uh, of school. But then the other thing that he is telling people, which is, again, it's interesting, this is so different from the French system, is saying that, oh, well, maybe you can have sets in, you know, so if you're if you're strong in maths and strong in French, you'll be in a different class in school from, you know, the people who are really struggling at the bottom. And so, you know, for, for many countries, that is totally the normal way of doing things. But mm. in France, this seems to be quite a, quite a big change. Absolutely. Now, I have this kind of weird idea where I believe if you want to go out to eat, you go to a restaurant. And if you want to go out to watch a film, you go to a cinema. <laughs> you don't have to combine the two. Oh, I'm totally with you on this one. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, this is about snacking in, in films. Yes, this is a story that is picked up uh, in, in The Guardian. Um, and a Spanish cinema chain has been uh, a consumer rights group took a Spanish cinema chain uh, to court because, you know, as you all know, you know, if you, if you do want to buy, OK, a little snack in the cinema, I don't like people who sit there and have, you know, a whole meal. There's whole cinemas now where you can actually sit and have a proper a proper meal. You know, it's like, you know, two, two, two separate things. These are two separate <laughs> things. However, if you want to buy some popcorn or some sweets, they are usually really expensive in the cinema. So you end up sort of trying to sneak your packet of sweets in without them noticing. Um, and the Spanish Consumers Affairs Department um, has now fined uh, a Spanish cinema chain 30,000 euros for refusing entry to customers who buy their food and drink outside the premises. So they've said, because you are not a restaurant, this is their argument, um, the company says you don't allow people to bring their own food or drink purchased outside, which is why they can obviously charge a large amount for the popcorn. But the consumer group argued that given the cinema's main activity is showing films and not providing food services, it's not valid for them to use this excuse to refuse entry to people who have brought food and drink outside. So, you know, now if you want to go to Spain, you can take your own popcorn, you can take your own sweets. I don't know whether they'll stop you if you bring in an entire pizza or something like that. Um, <laughs> but this is, you know, potentially good news for some Spanish cinema goers and potentially bad news for others if you don't want people munching next to you. Terry, thank you very much indeed. That's Terry Stiastini there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. 
The US has begun imposing visa bans on people involved in violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, Washington officials said, after several appeals for Israel to do more to prevent violence by Jewish settlers. Attacks there surged in recent months as Jewish settlements expanded and have spiked again since the October the 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. The United States and Sweden have signed a defence cooperation agreement, the US Department of State said, as the Nordic country strengthens military alliances while waiting for approval to join NATO. The Swedish defence minister said he was hopeful that accession would happen as soon as possible, but would not give any estimate when Turkey and Hungary, the only two NATO members not to give Sweden the green light yet, would add their support. And Australia Post will soon end daily letter deliveries as part of a series of postal reforms announced today, designed to modernise the government-owned postal service and help it turn a profit. It lost 200 million Australian dollars before tax for the 2023 financial year ended in June, only its second time in the red since 1989, and warned of future losses without reforms. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Last month, New Zealand elected a new centre-right government and yesterday saw the opening of New Zealand's 54th Parliament in Wellington. But thousands turned up outside Parliament and across the country to protest against the new government's policies towards Indigenous people. Well, I'm joined now by Lizette Raymer, who's Europe correspondent with News Hub in uh, New Zealand. Uh, Lizette, what are these new government policies? Well, there are a range of them uh, to start with that spread from everything towards uh, repealing our smoke-free policy, which obviously has huge implications for the Māori population of New Zealand because they are well overrepresented in terms of lung cancer uh, statistics. There are also specific changes around uh, how we title our public organisations, for example, uh, our New Zealand Transport Agency is usually or has been up until this point known as Waka Kotahi, which is its Māori name. That will now be changed and it will be reverting back to the likes of New Zealand Transport Agency. So that's the same across all of the public organisations that have had Māori names in the past. They will be changed uh, to their English names first and foremost. There's uh, a, an effort to rid the country of co-governance, something that has been hotly contested for many years, but now they really want to put an end to. So, uh, for example, we've had a specific Māori health organisation uh, authority that has always dealt with Māori health issues specifically and prioritised them. They They don't want that separation anymore across the country. They want people to be treated based on their priority, uh, their need, their requirement, the urgency, as opposed to addressing people first and foremost based on their ethnicity. So broadly speaking, the focus is on reforming the Treaty of Waitangi, which is a document, a founding document uh, from 180 years ago between Māori and the Crown, which has set the tone for all of the decisions that are made in New Zealand in terms of respecting the relationship between uh, between the native uh, native people, the Māori people, and, and what they deserve uh, as they were first in the land. Why does the centre-right government want to do this? 
Well, there's two aspects to that. First thing you need to understand is that the national government was forced into a coalition partnership with two other parties in order to form a government in the first place. So as a result of that, although they wouldn't present it this way, they have had to compromise on some of their own original policies in order to make that coalition come together. So while the National Party had originally said they don't see a need for a referendum on the Treaty of Waitangi, they didn't support a reform around it four weeks ago. Now, because they've had to form a coalition and join with the likes of the ACT Party, which is a right party they've had to adopt some of that policy and their main policy throughout the election campaign was around reforming the treaty of waitangi so part of it was just to get the coalition up and running the other element is it is that main one of those main controversial um points which would be the reform of the treaty has only been supported through the first steps. So the National Party has said we'll support it to a bill, but beyond that, if you actually want to get the referendum, then we're not promising anything. And it's likely at that point it will fall over and it won't go any further, but that doesn't mean that the debate won't rage and it won't cause a lot of controversial discussion. We've already seen the protests that are mounting around the country. So that alone is what the opposition is saying is going to be unnecessarily fraught and is going to promote division around the country. So whether or not it even progresses uh, to a referendum stage, the damage is done is essentially what the opposition is saying by even suggesting that co-governance is the wrong way to do things or that the Treaty of Waitangi isn't fair across the country. But as I said originally, for the National Party, their argument has been, we are not anti-Maori, we are not uh, we're not anti the Treaty of Waitangi, we are not racist. What we want is for everyone around the country to be treated equally, for everyone to have the same access to house uh, resources, to be getting priority care if they, do, if they need it, not to be judged first on the colour of their skin, on their ethnicity and whether or not they're Māori or European. Tell us more about the protests. Who organised them? How widespread were they and are they ongoing? The protests have been spearheaded by the Māori Party, party to Pāti Māori. Uh, so that party is the one who is obviously the most aggrieved by the proposed changes and the direction of this new government. So they set up these protests and... To be fair, I think even they were potentially surprised by the scale of them in the end and how much they escalated across the country. It did coincide with the first day of sitting parliament. There were thousands of people on the streets all across the country as well, not not just uh, exclusive to Wellington around Parliament or Auckland, which is a major city, but spread in, in some of the smaller communities where perhaps they thought 40 would show up, 400 did. Uh, there were blockages on the motorways, on the main highways into Auckland that caused huge delays for people getting around the city. So it was relatively disruptive, but very peaceful at the same time. I think we will continue to see these protests uh, and that is part of what people are concerned about, that the policy, that the direction of the government, whether or not some of the changes do actually go ahead, whether they do get the public support, whether they get the parliament support to be voted in, the, the suggestion of them is divisive enough. And now we're seeing 
that already flaring up a couple of weeks after this government was even agreed upon. Mm. And just very quickly before you go, could you describe, I mean, would you say there is a definite racial divide in New Zealand? Well, I think for years people have been talking about the unconscious bias that exists in New Zealand. And I think a lot of people would agree. I mean, you cannot argue the stats, the facts that Māori are overrepresented in all of our major statistics, the the um, the crime statistics, the as I said, the lung cancer, all of the health issues, uh, truancy at schools, the university entrance and, and enrolment. Māori are disadvantaged across the board in that regard, and that's why there has always been an effort to support them and prioritise them and target targeted support for Māori across the country. That has been the whole idea of co-governance over the last uh, several terms of government. Now, I think the idea uh, from the national government is to say, if we want to be I mean, the suggestion is that he is, that Christopher Luxon is racist. He said that's hugely unfair. What we're asking for is for everyone in the country to be treated equally. How can that be racist? So it, it's going to be a, a very uh, interesting time in the next couple of months, especially as we see how the dust settles around the high emotions of the change in government, everyone finding their new roles in the government, and get the public used to these new policies, the potential reform and actually what it's going to look like mm. and what it is actually going to to translate into in real terms as opposed to just bullet points on a page of what we want to do. What actually makes it into reality will be very interesting and then what the public reaction is to that then. Lizette, thank you very much indeed. That was Lizette Raymer of News Hub and you're with Monocle Radio. It's 7.40 in London, 8.40 in Zurich. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, is holding an event at COP28 later today, looking at the future of work and the demand for green jobs. Francesca Borgonovi is the head of the Skills Analysis Team in the OECD Centre for Skills. Earlier, she spoke to Monocle's Emma Nelson, who began by asking her what is meant by green jobs. Well, there are different uh, ways in which we can think about what a green job is. I mean, I actually do not necessarily particularly like uh, the term green job. What I think it's uh, it's interesting is actually to talk about jobs uh, that are compatible or help us advance uh, the green transition. In that sense, you know, there are obvious jobs in sectors like renewables, but at the same time, there are a lot of jobs that are in sectors that still contribute to advance green objectives. For example, we have much better ways to, for example, promote sustainable agriculture. We have ways to promote better construction and etc. And so different jobs that help advance those objectives are still very much can be classified as green. So this means that there is an awful lot of change needed to make sure that the people who work now are going to be able to have the skills to do these jobs of the future. So how much, when it comes to governments, how much are they factoring in this this major change that's needed? 
in a way, they're making big investments uh, in technologies, uh, green technologies, but not only. Uh, one of the ways in which, uh, as societies, we advance uh, green objectives uh, is by using technological developments to consume less energy. So uh, investments in green technologies are one way in which uh, governments are reshaping, uh, so to speak, uh, the labor market. The other is uh, through, for example, uh, making sure that uh, there are uh, the set of skills that are needed uh, to fulfill jobs that are aligned with green objectives. And in this sense, there is a big role for governments to play in providing other learning opportunities, vocational education and training, but also education for youngsters to ensure that there are the skills needed to power the green transition in the moment, but also more long term. And when it comes to trying to be ready for the green transition, when everything becomes net zero, which countries are doing well when it comes to this and and which countries are lagging behind? If we look at uh, environmental sustainability competence uh, of young people, uh, what we see is that we need to build uh, scientific literacy, but at the same time, we need to build uh, the will, uh, in other words, uh, the attitudes and dispositions uh, of using uh, scientific knowledge uh, to advance uh, green objectives. Let me give you uh, the OECD average. On average, across OECD countries, around 78% of 15-year-old students achieved at least the basic objectives in the PISA science proficiency. But when you factor in also uh, the attitudes and dispositions that make environmental sustainability, that number decreased to 33%. In terms of the way that we are educating the next generation of workers, Is the suggestion, therefore, that not only you have to have the desire to make your world more green, but at the same time, you have to be a scientist? At the very basic level, you have to have at least a good level of scientific understanding. That's a prerequisite to make informed decisions, particularly in a world in which we have, you know, uh, misinformation online. So having at least a basic level of science ability is critical to make good choices uh, for the environment, both as a consumer and as a worker. And then there are some specific occupations in which having very high levels of scientific ability is actually critical uh, to drive the innovation that is needed uh, to develop new green technologies. What if you're not a scientist? Uh, Everyone is a natural scientist. Uh, You you do not uh, necessarily need to have internalized, you know, scientific facts. Uh, What you need to know is actually how to think as a scientist. Uh, And this is what our education systems should equip youngsters with. Finally, how important is it for the likes of the OECD to be talking about this at COP? I think it's critical. COP is all about international collaboration and cooperation, and that's at the very heart of the mission of the OECD. And the OECD is a leading forum, both in terms of developing measures, in terms of how labor markets can reform and how skill systems can support the green transition, but also in terms of helping uh, governments, uh, particularly different uh, education ministries, labor market ministries, uh, ministries involved uh, in environmental matters, as well as science innovation, to actually have a fruitful discussion and make sure that the green transition is just as inclusive. 
That was Francesca Borganovi speaking to Monocle's Emma Nelson. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk theatre now with the theatre critic at the International New York Times, Matt Wolfe, who joins me in the studio. Good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, good morning. Uh, you're looking surprisingly fresh for somebody who's having to rush around and uh, see many of the theatre openings happening this month. It's insane, right? <laughs> yes, I do like my coffee. Um, <laughs> December's always busy, but this year seems quantifiably uh, to have raised it to the next level. Uh, I mean, it's partly producers want all the things to open so that we will all give our loved ones theatre tickets for Christmas. Uh, and the result is that January is a, a bit of a trough. But, for instance, on December 12th, there are four openings on one night. So how everyone is going to do it, the, the answer is they aren't. They're going yeah. to pick and choose. Yeah, well, exactly. What does this mean for critics and for audiences? You sort of wonder if there's there's enough audience to go around for all this stuff. But I think there is. These shows are all very, very different. So I suppose if each one finds its niche, then then you're away. Yeah. So uh, The Homecoming, which is, of course, Pinter's great play. Yes, this is one of my absolute favourite plays, premiered in 1965. It was a big hit on Broadway originally where it won the Tony Award. And it, it crops up uh, in the UK quite frequently. Uh, this is a new production of The Young Vic directed by Matthew Dunster with Jared Harris uh, playing the kind of scold of a father who has these three uh, sons, one of whom brings uh, a wife back from America, a wife rather uh, symbolically called Ruth, who uh, brings Ruth compassion and other things into this um, rather strange North London household marked by an absence of female uh, influence. And it's about power. It's about sexuality. It's about jockeying for position. Um, I like this production very much. The one thing I would say about it that I might perhaps object to Pinter's all about stillness and quiet, mm. and this production is quite noisy. For instance, when you walk in, there's a jazz score playing. A lot of the great moments in the play are underscored with sound effects or, again, more jazz, and I just wanted stillness to let it settle. But the play does ultimately deliver, and it's so teasing. It's as teasing now as it was, you know, 50 years ago. Mm. Well, talking about a revival of a show, The House of Bernarda Alba at the National. Now, I remember seeing Glenda Jackson Yo. in that in an absolute absolutely stand-out production. I, I remember that so vividly, directed by a wonderful Spanish uh, uh, auteur, Nuria Esper. Uh, this is... Uh, of a piece with that, actually, in that it's uh, quite harrowing. Uh, it takes no prisoners. It's got an extraordinary set, which fills the whole height, width, and depth of the Littleton space. The curtain goes up, and you are peering into her household, all the bedrooms, the bathroom, the kitchen, the living room, and it's quite extraordinary. You feel as if you're eavesdropping on every nook and cranny of this house in Andalusia in the 1930s, uh, presided over by the fearsome matriarch Bernardo Alba, who uh, keeps a very tight fist on her five uh, daughters. It occurred to me watching The Homecoming that maybe they should marry the sons from The Homecoming and the daughters from Bernardo <laughs> Alba. And that would be a very interesting mashup Wouldn't for somebody it? to do. But this is a Rebecca Frecknell, you know, is a very hot director of Cabaret and Circuit and Desire, making her national theater debut and proving that really she's at home in any auditorium in any venue. And uh, it's not uh, for people who want jollier, lighter it's pretty remorseless, but I think you go to Bernard Alba expecting that. What about Infinite 
Infinite Life, also at the National. That's really a, an extraordinary play. This is by the American writer Annie Baker. This is the fourth play of hers that's been done at the National Theatre in the Dorfman, their smallest space. Uh, and she... She's kind of Pinter plus. She likes hyper-realism, long pauses that take as long as they take, so there's no rushing it. This is a play, hilarious but also ultimately quite harrowing, set in a fasting clinic in Northern California where people have come to get well or not. And the one thing they have in common is that they're all in pain. And they anatomize their pain <laughs> very vividly. Uh, and they have pictures of what's going on in their innards on their phone. But it's um, really a, a kind of uh, comedy about peering into the abyss. It reminded me a lot of Beckett. Beckett used to say that nothing is funnier than unhappiness. And there's a lot of that in this play. It's beautifully done by the all-American cast from New York who did it there in August. And it's a real treat for people who are up for that kind of thing uh, at the National over the season. Finally, a musical, a Sondheim musical. Yes, this is a, I'm a Sondheim addict, as listeners probably know. Uh, this is a show of his from 1976 called Pacific Overtures. And it's very unusual for Sondheim, which is, is saying a lot because most of Sondheim is quite unusual. This is about the opening up of Japan to the West. And it starts uh, in the mid-19th century and then it carries through, well, uh, the modern day in 1976. And now they've pushed it forward in this version to the world of AI. And uh, it's got a gorgeous score, but even by Sondheim standards, it's very intricate and complicated. The one problem is that this cast, I think, isn't quite yet on top of the material. You've got to get every single syllable for it to land, and some of it is a bit muddy, and if you don't get every minute of it, then you're sort of missing out. But it's beautifully uh, served by the Minier Chocolate Factory. The design is absolutely gorgeous, and I think Sondheim completists, of whom there are a lot in London, will want to see this so as to tick it off their checklist. Absolutely. Matt, thank you very much indeed. And I must just tell you that last time we spoke, you recommended I go and see uh, Gwyneth Goes Well, sight unseen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I am seeing it. It's going to be Christmas treat. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Very much looking forward to that. But perhaps I'll, I'll sort of try and do something more intellectual after that. Perhaps the, the House of Bernardo <laughs> Matt Wolf, thank you very much you. indeed. This is The Globalist. Finally, on today's show, if you suddenly felt the pang of old age and irrelevance when you realised you'd never heard of the word of the year, riz, have no fear. It seems that elders are taking the music world by storm. At least, the women are. And before I move on, can I just tell you it's charisma is what it's short for? The legend, see, I knew. The legendary Dolly Parton is enjoying perhaps the best week of her career as her rock star albums hit number one on three Billboard charts. But she's not the only sprightly star in her 70s to release the biggest chart win of her career. Cher has scored another number one Billboard chart hit with her first holiday album, Christmas. Monocle's ever-observant senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, has noticed this trend and joins me now to discuss his findings. Fernando, you've coined a new catchphrase, haven't you? 70s are the new 20s. And I mean it so much. In fact, I was walking around Liverpool Street here in London. There was a massive poster of Dolly Parton's new album, Rockstar. And that's where the catchphrase came, came up. But then there's been new developments this week. Do you know who is number one in the US charts this week? I'll tell you. It's Brenda Lee with Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. At 78 years old, she's the oldest act to top the American charts, which is a remarkable thing. The song has been at number two already. 
And there's been a massive profile of her at the New York Times. She's saying, I'm making more money now than, than when I was a young singer. And, and is this a re-release or this is her original? That's the original. But the thing is, of course, for the streaming versions, she did a kind of a special video on YouTube as well, which will count uh, for the sales. So Mariah Carey is in danger of losing the spot, uh, you know, for this amazing Christmas classic, which I believe we have a clip of it. Shall we have a listen? It is a delight, right? It really is. I've got to be honest, actually, I think this is one of my favorite Christmas songs, even before uh, it's being uh, number one there as well. But you might ask me a question, right, Georgina? Is this nostalgia for Well, I mean, well? is it? Because the, the world is yeah. so terrible everywhere we look now. We want to have the comfort of something we've known and loved before. It's a mix. Yes, I think especially in Brenda Lee's case, I do think that's the case. But when you look at Dolly Parton, for example, her album Rockstar, although it is made of covers of classic songs, I mean, she's sexy. You know, she was singing with, you know, very short shorts. I do think she's still trying to innovate. Uh, I know the critics say perhaps it's not the best of Dolly Parton, but there's innovation there as well. So I don't think it's only nostalgia. And I think young people are enjoying those icons as well. I'll give you a little taster of Dolly Parton's amazing cover of Purple Rain by Prince as well. I only want to see Particularly in the pop world, it would always seem that age, age and beauty matter. You've got to be young and gorgeous. But this is clearly no longer the case. It is no longer the case. It's changing. I mean, of course, uh, you know, if you look at the top of the charts, you have those artists, you have, you know, Doja Cat, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, of course, they are young. But I think the world is changing and it's kind of accepting, especially if you're a woman over 70, because we know all the rock stars. Uh, you know, I'm not talking here about the Rolling Stones. They are doing well. Uh, it's kind of expected, but it's amazing to see people like Cher. And they are revered by the amazing people they are. I was looking at Cher in one of the talk shows here in the United Kingdom. I mean, in the couch, there was Timothée Chalamet, Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, but everybody was only talking about Cher. And, you know, she released a Christmas album and, and she said, why are you releasing one now? And she said, well, Christmas albums is not my thing. But then I decided to do a little bit of a twist and turn. She's not as traditional as Brenda Lee. So again, if you're 78, you don't need to be like a certain standard. So she actually released a single, DJ Play a Christmas Song. I don't think you'll be for everyone. It's not a classic like Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. I quite enjoy it. And I think we do have a clip of that. DJ play a Christmas song. So, I mean, you can have a classic with Brenda Lee, you can have amazing share being innov innovative, and you can have sexy Dolly Parton. I mean, there are many ways to be 70s, and I'm quite happy with that, Georgina. 
There we have it. 70s, officially the new 20s. Fernando, thanks for joining us here on The Globalist. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Christy O'Grady and Emma Searle. Our researcher, Naomi Akwe, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be here for the next few hours playing you a lot of great tracks from around the world and also our sharp programming. And I'll be back on The Briefing, which is live at midday London time. And uh, I'll return on The Globalist, which is at exactly the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.